Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast. I'm your host, Jack Henneman. This episode is the Admiral of the Ocean Sea, Part 1, that being the title by royal order of Christopher Columbus. And yes, I will use his English name rather than his Genoese, Portuguese, or Spanish names. Since this podcast series is the History of the Americans, and since by that, you mean the history of the people who occupy the land that is now the United States, one might well ask why we are talking about Columbus at all. There are several reasons. First, without Columbus, or somebody who came along when Columbus did and connected the Eastern and Western hemispheres the way he did it, we Americans would have a very different history. That is why there are statues of him everywhere. Well, that and... Nobody wants to irritate Italian-Americans if they can avoid it, as every fan of the Columbus Day episode of The Sopranos well knows. Second, many of the histories of the United States in the last couple of centuries start with Columbus. The first and precedent-setting such history is that of George Bancroft. The then 10-volume History of the United States, from the discovery of the American continent to the present, written between 1834 and 1874. Bancroft was the founding father of the history professoriate in the United States, and the annual Bancroft Prize is the most famous recognition for the best history book of any year. Samuel Eliot Morrison, Harvard's great naval historian and Columbus' most celebrated biographer, begins the Oxford History of the American People, written in 1965, with Columbus. More recently, both Paul Johnson's A History of the American People from 1997 and Jill Lepore's Engrossing These Truths, A History of the United States from 2018 start with Columbus. Only Carl Degler's Out of Our Past, no doubt familiar to many of you and mentioned in the introductory episode of this podcast series, does not mention Columbus. But four out of five authors surveyed did, and who am I to argue with Bancroft, Morrison, and Lepore? Third, Columbus was actually a very interesting person who did some unbelievable things. Most people today don't know nearly as much about him as I think they should. That's a good reason. To understand the extraordinary story of Columbus and the consequences of contact between the Eastern and Western hemispheres, makes sense to take a moment and consider the world as it was before. There were roughly 400 to 500 million humans on the entire planet, of which the Western Hemisphere accounted for perhaps 75 million souls, and the entire continent of Europe, only about 60 million. In North America, estimates vary from 2 million to 18 million, So the balance of the population of the Western Hemisphere lived in the much more densely populated parts south of the Rio Grande. These numbers, as vague as they are, if anything, overstate the precision with which we actually know the population of the Americas in 1491. For an excellent overview of the academic debate between the high counters and the low counters, see Charles Mann's now famous book, 1491. Or, if you listen to the first two episodes of the History of the Americans, you've already had a taste 
of the debate. Europe in the late Middle Ages was not at its best. The continent was only just past its calamitous 14th century in which plague, endless war, brigandage, and papal schism consign Europeans to death, misery, poverty, and hell. The population was, in 1492, only just recovering the level of 1300. The aforementioned Samuel Eliot Morrison begins his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Columbus, Admiral of the Ocean Sea, published in 1942, with this bleak assessment, quote, the end of the year 1492, most men in Western Europe felt exceedingly gloomy about the future. Christian civilization appeared to be shrinking in area and dividing into hostile units as its sphere contracted. For over a century, there had been no important advance in natural science, and registration in the universities dwindled as the instruction they offered became increasingly jejune and lifeless. Institutions were decaying, well-meaning people were growing cynical or desperate, and many intelligent men, for want of something better to do, were endeavoring to escape the present through studying the pagan past. With the practical dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire and the church's loss of moral leadership, Christians had nothing to which they might cling. The great principle of unity, represented by emperor and pope, was a dream of the past that had not come true. Belief in the institutions of their ancestors was wavering. It seemed as if the devil had adopted as his own the principle divide and rule. Throughout Western Europe, the general feeling was one of profound disillusion, cynical pessimism, and black despair. One may catch the prevailing mood by reading the final pages of the Nuremberg Chronicle. The Colophon, I had to look that one up, it's the publisher's statement at the end of the book. Of this stately old folio, dated July 12th, 1493, declares that it contains the events most worthy of notice from the beginning of the world to the calamity of our time. Yet even as the chroniclers of Nuremberg were correcting their proofs from Coburger's press, a Spanish caravel named Nina scudded before a winter gale into Lisbon with news of a discovery that was to give old Europe another chance. In a few years, we find the mental picture completely changed. Strong monarchs are stamping out privy conspiracy and rebellion. The church, purged and chastened by the Protestant Reformation, puts her house in order. New ideas flare up throughout Italy, France, Germany, and the northern nations. Faith in God revives, and the human spirit is renewed. The change is complete and astounding. Close quote. Now it should be said that at some point, somebody from the Eastern Hemisphere was going to discover, you can't see my air quotes, but there they are, the Western Hemisphere, or vice versa. The question is, why was that person Christopher Columbus? The answer to that question depends from two others. Why was that person European? And then, what was it about Columbus that impelled him to do it instead of, say, 
some Portuguese adventurer with more credibility and experience as an explorer. So why was it a European who made first contact? Jill Lepore considers the alternatives in these truths. Quote, to start with, weighing the evidence, it's a little surprising that it was Western Europeans in 1492 and not some other group of people some other year who crossed an ocean to discover a lost world. Making the journey required knowledge, capacity, and interest. The Maya, whose territory stretched from what is now Mexico to Costa Rica, knew enough astronomy to navigate across the ocean as early as AD 300. They did not, however, have seaworthy boats. The ancient Greeks had known a great deal about cartography. Claudius Ptolemy, an astronomer who lived in the second century, had devised a way to project the surface of the globe into a flat surface with near-perfect proportions. But medieval Christians, having dismissed the writings of the ancient Greeks as pagan, had lost much of that knowledge. The Chinese had invented the compass in the 11th century and had excellent boats. Before his death in 1433, Zhang He, a Chinese Muslim, had explored the coast of much of Asia and Eastern Africa, leading 200 ships and 27,000 sailors. But China was the richest country in the world and by the late 15th century, no longer allowed travel beyond the Indian Ocean on the theory that the rest of the world was unworthy and uninteresting. West Africans navigated the coastline and rivers that led into a vast inland trade network, but prevailing winds and currents thwarted them from navigating north, and they seldom ventured into the ocean. Muslims from North Africa and the Middle East, who had never cast aside the knowledge of antiquity and the calculations of Ptolemy, made accurate maps and built sturdy ships, but because they dominated trade in the Mediterranean Sea as well as overland trade with Africa for gold and with Asia for spices, they didn't have much reason to venture farther. It was somewhat out of desperation then that the poorest and weakest Christian monarchs on the very western edge of Europe, fighting with Muslims, jealous of the Islamic world's monopoly on trade, and keen to spread their religion, began looking for routes to Africa and Asia that wouldn't require sailing across the Mediterranean. Close quote. So in short, Europe was sucking wind, and everybody else who might have ventured out lacked either some critical bit of technology or, on account of success elsewhere, adequate motivation. The European Age of Exploration, launched by Prince Henry the Navigator of Portugal in the first half of the 15th century, didn't reflect European strength so much as desperation. Indeed, as we shall see, when Portugal's competitors, the very Catholic dual sovereigns of Aragon and Castile, eventually underwrote the project Christopher Columbus had been pitching all over Europe, it was, yes, I'll say it, one of the great Hail Marys in all of history. That is why the man who arranged the first connection between the hemispheres since the Bering Land Bridge slipped under the Arctic Ocean 13,000 years ago, was European. The aforementioned Prince Henry the Navigator was actually the Enfant Dom Henrique, 
English writers cooked up Prince Henry the Navigator in the 19th century, and I shall use that name too because my Portuguese pronunciation is a bit rusty. Henry was the organizer of discovery. His headquarters were on Cape St. Vincent in southwestern Portugal and were situated on bluffs above a long-used roadstead. That's maritime lingo for a place where ships can anchor near shore without getting hammered by high winds or swells. There, Henry established what today's listeners will instantly recognize as an incubator, but for explorer entrepreneurs rather than tech bro wannabes. Morrison again. On the desolate windbone cliffs overhanging Sager's Roads, a natural exchange post for marine information, the prince built himself a town that included everything needed to supply and attract seamen including an information service that made this lonely settlement ancestor to every marine observatory and hydrographic office of today. Prince Henry procured all the charts and sailing directions that he could find of the known world. Mathematicians who encouraged seafarers to strike out from the shore into deep water, and pilots who were competent to find their way back. Young, daring, and enterprising masters were encouraged to enter his service, and from the harbor of Lagos, a few miles down the coast, their ships were dispatched to destinations unknown. See, Henry set up an incubator. I bet they even had free coffee and networking happy hours with a nice Duaro or Tempranillo. Anyway, It's not our purpose to tell the story of Portuguese exploration in detail, interesting as it is. There are parts of it, however, that are relevant to the decision of Ferdinand and Isabella to sponsor Columbus. And that was the crucial distinct decision that allowed Europeans to connect the two hemispheres in 1492, rather than some other people at some other time. The short version is that Henry's incubator for explorers discovered the western Azores for Portugal in the 1430s, and by 1452, the Portuguese reached Corvo, the westernmost of the chain sitting only about a thousand miles from Labrador. The Portuguese did not know it, but they were halfway to the New World 40 years before Columbus. Perhaps more importantly, Henry's entrepreneurial explorers pushed down the African coast. And by his death in 1460, Portuguese caravels had passed the site of Dakar and were making progress south every year. Then exploration stalled for a decade, resuming in 1469 when King Afonso V granted a Lisbon merchant a monopoly on trade with the Guinea coast on the condition that he push exploration south 100 leagues that's about 345 of our statute miles, every year. That interesting use of monopoly to motivate innovation resulted in Bartolomeu Diaz rounding the Cape of Good Hope in 1490, just two years before Columbus sailed, and Vasco da Gama reaching India by that route in 1498, only five years after news of Columbus's discoveries reached Europe. Exploration for Portugal was a big government project by the standards of the day. As happens with government projects, politics mattered, interests vested. 
Eventually, Portugal became commercially and psychologically committed to the African coast and the pursuit of a route to India thereby. When Columbus, a new entrepreneur with a disruptive pitch deck promoting a westward route to India and China, approached the Portuguese to sponsor his trip as they had so many others, the elites in Lisbon would miss the opportunity. And it must be said, not because they thought the world was flat. Morrison puts a fork in that old myth. Every educated man of the day believed the world to be a sphere. Every European university so taught geography. And seamen, though they might doubt the practical possibility of sailing down under or holding on when you get there, knew perfectly well from seeing ships hull down and raising mountains as they approached that the surface of the globe was curved. So who was Christopher Columbus? His hometown of Genoa was a great trading city-state, so Columbus went to sea as a young man and spent his 20s trading and getting into scrapes, including a battle at sea with the Spanish that resulted in him kickboarding six miles to shore, quite near Prince Henry's incubator for explorers. By the time he was 30, he had business connections in the leading merchant banking houses of Italy, and was related by marriage with two of Portugal's most important families. Unfortunately, there is scant evidence of his character at that age, but as his life comes into the historical record, the documents that do exist suggest he had great physical courage, persistence, and willpower. Dang it, he swam through six miles of Atlantic Ocean after having his ship shot out from under him. These traits would serve him well, on his expeditions to come. Neither was Columbus without defects. As many disruptive entrepreneurs can be, Columbus didn't always appreciate the people who worked for him, nor did he always perceive his own shortcomings. He could be a big-time whinger when he felt that he did not get the recognition and rewards he thought he was due, and was prone to feeling sorry for himself. None of this is surprising in a solitary man on a mission, And that is surely what Columbus was. With that brief introduction, let's look at how Columbus got the idea to reach Asia by going west, and how he pitched and eventually sold that idea to Ferdinand and Isabella. Understanding why the dual sovereigns of Aragon and Castile bought the deal, rather than Portugal or England or France, is important to the story, and ultimately to the history of the world. Now, I'm going to mention a bunch of different places, and in studying Columbus's story, I found it very useful to pop open Google Maps on my phone and see where particular places were. So if your geography is as poor as mine and you're not frying beignets or driving your car as you listen to this, you might want to do the same thing. By the middle of the 15th century, Prince Henry's explorers in addition to poking along the west coast of Africa, had been looking for islands in the Atlantic. As mentioned already, they had discovered a chain of remote islands in the middle of the northern Atlantic, the Azores, including Corvo, which is the farthest west and north. The Azores are roughly the latitude of New Jersey, so one would think that this would be a promising jumping-off point for further exploration to the west, 
There was even a natural rock statue of a horseman pointing westward, which Columbus is said to have seen in his salad days and taken as something of a message. The problem, though, is that westerlies, meaning winds from the west, blow hard in the Azores. When your ship is a caravel, fighting the wind is not only physically exhausting, but it tremendously shortens the practical range of your voyage because you will run out of water and food before you can get to the next point of respite. This is the challenge, in general, of crossing the North Atlantic to the West by sail. This problem was significant to the point of discouraging, because nobody knew how long it would take to get to Asia, other than that it was a long way. We will talk about the crucial judgment about the distance to Asia in a bit. Suffice it to say that the strong westerlies in the North Atlantic, in the context not knowing the distance required to get to the next landfall, discouraged the Portuguese, who were in any case increasingly optimistic of finding their way to Asia via Africa. Columbus' decisive and motivating insight, which turned out to be a spectacular error that worked out because of unbelievable luck, was that the distance to Asia traveling west from Iberia was much shorter than the conventional wisdom held, and therefore within reach of a caravel under the right conditions. There was evidence that lands lay to the west. A Portuguese pilot named Vicente was out west of the Azores and picked up a piece of wood, ingeniously wrought, but not with iron. Columbus' brother-in-law found another strange carving on the beach on Porto Santo, Portuguese island off the coast of Morocco, where Columbus had lived for a time. There he also came across very thick canes drifted ashore of a species never yet seen in Africa. Storms that amplified the usual westerlies, blue light driftwood ashore in the Azores, including bean-like plants that we now know as Antatagigas, in Morrison's words, a woody climber related to the mimosa that grows all along the shores of the Caribbean. Finally, two dead bodies had been cast up on Flores, also in the western Azores, that did not look like Europeans, but were, quote, broad-faced like the Chinese, at least as the Europeans had heard them described. It is not hard to imagine that these were Indian corpses, somewhat the worse for wear for having been swept to the Azores in a storm. All of this evidence and more suggested that lands with people on them lay to the west plausibly within range of a caravel with fair easterly winds. At this point, we should say three things. First, that it did not occur to Europeans in the late Middle Ages that there were populated lands that weren't already known in some respect. Marco Polo had traveled to Asia and Africa and had written of them in considerable detail. India, China, and Japan were known to exist. No source, not even the Bible or other religious texts, suggested that there might be a vast and thickly peopled hemisphere that was unknown to Europeans and Asians. So these clues, drifting flora and strange bodies and such, were best explained as Asian. At least to Columbus, and it must be said, other Europeans to whom we will get in a bit. 
Second, all of these clues to which Columbus attached significance were refutable. Any naysayer could reasonably discount them. There was no complete catalog of all known African plants, nor were there advanced techniques for figuring out that a couple of bodies weren't actually just Europeans or Africans. Third, there was no real argument in the 15th century over whether Asia, in fact, sat to the west of Europe. The only question was whether it was technically possible to get there in a caravel in one go. The argument was therefore over distance. So let's review that debate as it stood in the 1480s. Remember, everybody who was everybody knew that the Earth was a sphere. They also knew that the circumference of a sphere can be calculated by multiplying the length of a degree by 360. To determine the distance from, say, Lisbon to Asia by sailing west, one therefore needed to know two things. How far east did Asia extend, and what was the length of a degree? Both of these were much argued over and used to argue against funding Columbus's ventures. The width of Asia was much in dispute. The Venetian traveler Marco Polo had argued that the eastern edge of Asia was 30 degrees farther east than had been claimed by Claudius Ptolemy, the Roman Egyptian scholar who'd invented cartography 1,300 years earlier. Most late medieval scholars discounted Polo and went with Ptolemy's guess. But the great Florentine mathematician Paolo del Pozzo Toscanelli thought differently and so argued in correspondence, including to the king of Portugal around 1480. Toscanelli was then in his 80s and would not live much longer, but he did meet with Columbus and endorsed his venture enthusiastically. In modern venture capital terms, Toscanelli was one of Columbus's key opinion leaders and provided important validation, both of which are in air quotes you cannot see. At any rate, Toscanelli predicted a sail of some 5,000 nautical miles, that's close to 6,000 statute miles, from Spain to China, perhaps broken at a mythical island called Antilia, that would be where the name Antilles comes from, and of course at Japan. For the record, the actual distance is 10,600 statute miles. If one were to sail in a straight shot west, which one obviously cannot do. So the first big error was in estimating the size of Asia. Columbus, like any entrepreneur seeking financing, was not content to optimize his numbers in only one respect. Quoting Morrison, Columbus stretched out Asia eastward until Japan almost kissed the Azores. The way he figured it was something like this. You can follow him on any globe, however small. Ptolemy taught that the known world covered half the globe's circumference, 180 degrees from the meridian of Cape St. Vincent to Asia. That was already a 50% overestimate, but Columbus insisted it was all too small. He preferred the estimate of Marinius of Tyre, who stretched out the known world to 225 degrees. To that, Columbus added an additional 28 degrees for the discoveries of Marco Polo, 
and 30 degrees for the reputed distance from eastern China to the east coast of Japan. The total width of Europe and the Indies thus measured 283 degrees, and as Columbus proposes to start west from Faroe and the Canaries, which is 9 degrees west of the beginning of Europe at Cape St. Vincent, he has only 68 degrees of ocean to cross before hitting Japan, close quote. Columbus made a couple of other little tweaks and assumptions and one other huge error. He miscalculated the length of a degree, again to understate the difference. Now, in fairness, the problem of the length of a degree had been bothering mathematicians for almost 2,000 years. Eratosthenes got the closest in 200 B.C., 59.5 nautical miles. In case you haven't Googled it lately, a nautical mile is 1.15 statute miles. So 59.5 times 1.15 is 68.4 statute miles to a degree at the equator. And 68.4 times 360 is 24,633 statute miles. The actual circumference of the planet at the equator is 24,901 statute miles. So at least some smart Greeks have known that the Earth was a sphere about 25,000 miles around since 200 BC. I find that quite impressive. Columbus, however, didn't much like Eratosthenes' estimate, since 68 degrees of ocean across to Japan would still be 4,651 statute miles heading west. And that would be a heck of a schlep in a caravel. Columbus preferred the less correct guess of a medieval Muslim geographer named Alfragan, who was 56 and two-thirds, which was 56 and two-thirds Arabic miles per degree. Now that actually works out to 76.1 statute miles, substantially longer than Eratosthenes 68.4. But Columbus blew the conversion of Arabic miles to nautical and ended up with a degree measuring only 51 and three quarters statute miles. Since 51.75 miles multiplied by the assumed 68 degrees of ocean to cross to Japan comes to 3,519 statute miles, suddenly the trip looked plausible. Well, unless you know, as we do, that the actual distance from Portugal to Japan by air flying along that latitude is 10,600 statute miles. I know, nobody told you there would be math. Normally, there won't be much in this podcast, which I'm sure is a great relief to us all. Suffice it to say, though, that the cumulative effect of all of Columbus's optimistic assumptions and genuine math mistakes placed Japan about on the meridian of the Virgin Islands. As we shall see, that is why it took him years to realize he'd actually discovered a new world, if in fact he ever did. Curiously, this would not be the last time a seemingly obvious unit translation error would influence a voyage of discovery. In late 1998, NASA launched the Mars Climate Orbiter, built by Lockheed Martin and navigated to the Red Planet by a team at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It made it to Mars, but disintegrated as it plunged into the atmosphere. 
Subsequent failure analysis revealed that Lockheed had used English units of measurement in its design, and the navigators used the metric system. Per the Jet Propulsion Lab's website, the Mars Climate Orbiter was unsuccessful due to a navigation error caused by a failure to translate English units to metric. So, really, it could happen to anybody. Anyway, all of Columbus's mistakes made it into his pitch deck, which is my cheeky term for his venture investment proposal. The shopping of that proposal to the monarchs of Europe is its own interesting story and will be the main part of our next episode. Until then, please send me comments, criticisms, questions, corrections, pats on the back, and huzzahs by email to the history of the Americans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. And if you like what you hear, please give us a good rating in your podcatcher and tell all your friends. Thank you.